Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yardena Asband. Our daf of the day, Masechet Psachim, daf chet, page 8. Our Gemara star, um, has a discussion here of all of the different places and how to search for B'dikat Chametz, meaning to search for Chametz during the time that you're doing the official check. And the Gemara says, well, you know, you don't have to check everywhere because you don't have chametz everywhere. It's a given that you don't have chametz everywhere. So the Gemara specifies different kinds of places that you might check and whether you need to check or not. The Otrut Yayin, if you have a wine storage, wine cellar, I don't know. Ein tzarich b'dika, doesn't a wine storage require searching? Vatanya Otrut Yayin, tzarich b'dika, Otrut Shemen, ein tzarich b'dika. So the Gemara says, don't we have a breita that says, Wine storage needs checking, but oil storage does not need checking. So the Gemara says, well, isn't this, what's the case, right? Are we talking about a case where you would, you're, you might need the wine or the oil during the meal? And in which case, then the same way that you're not sure what you would need, it would apply similarly both to wine and to oil that you should have to do, do the checking there. So the Gemara explains this, and I think rather nicely. Shemen yesh kevel achila. You know how much oil you need during your meal. Even in a time, I guess, when people would be, uh, and I guess people do this nowadays again, you know, dipping bread into olive oil as a condiment, let's say, you have a sense of how much you need to put on the table. Yayin, and this is beautiful, yayin ain kevel There's no fixed amount for the wine that's going to be served at that meal. You might need to go to your wine storage and bring out more wine, which I found to be, entertaining to say the least um the fact that because you don't know how much wine you might need at your meal the idea is that you might leave your table and go to your wine cellar and now what if you have crumbs on your on your clothing or you're holding bread as you leave the table and now perhaps there's crumbs or a crust of bread or whatever that's gotten left in the wine cellar so you have to check there just to make sure that 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 never happened or that nothing ever got left left so the sages apparently treated the legal the 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 storages of the Hebrew here shechar. The English that I have seen of this translated as beer storages, which I found to be surprising because I always think of shechar as hard liquor. But of course, plenty of hard liquor themselves are humming. So, you know, whiskey is often made from grain, so as is beer, of course. So I'm not entirely clear um, what the issue is here. Um, you know, in terms of whether you have to go check there, because you know, if it's if it's chametz itself, I suppose it could be sold. I don't know, your Dana. Do you have any insight into this? No, I. Yeah, it's an odd word. It's an odd word, yeah. right? Um, okay, so in any case, the. The idea here is basically that as much as wine was the the main um, the wine the wine storage was the main issue in Israel in Babel in Babylonia they also did the same kind of check because maybe somebody went to get extra during the meal in Babel um, for whether whether it's hard liquor or beer. Amar Rav Chista beidagim Rav Chista says that if you have fish storage, you don't have to go check it out. You don't have to search there for chametz. But don't we have a bright that says you do have to check for the fish, fish storage? 
So the Gemara says, this is not, we don't have to worry about this being a problem or a contradiction. The lenient re- reading, meaning that you don't have to check, is if you're storing large fish. And you would have to check if you're dealing with small fish, because in terms of what if you don't know how many small fish you might need for the meal, you might need extra, so then you have to go replenish your supply during the meal, and you might bring your crumbs or drop your crumbs, and so you're going to check. Um, or Rab- and again, I find this, of course, interesting, because do you really not know how many fish you're going to... Like, if you heap your platter with more than your guests might need, then you're not going to go to storage to replenish the supply. But again, I, I guess I can't really understand the meals that we're talking about. It could be that we're talking about banquets and we've got a staff. Um, I don't know. Amar Rabba Rav Huna Be'malife Huna says, if you have salt storage, if you have candle storage, both of those places do require checking for, for chametz because, again, you may have entered those storages during the meal, whether for extra candles or for extra salt. Amrav Papa, Beit Sive Uve Tamre Tzarech Bidika. Rav Papa says that wood storage likewise needs Bidika. And if you have storage for dates, for Tamarim, um, you know, dates, then you also have to check. All of this is really about the, it says to be much more about the style of eating than you know, the actual likelihood of leaven being in these particular areas. The idea is that if you might replenish the supply of anything during a meal, then the area that you would go to to replenish the supply needs to be checked. Well, this whole thing with checking, you you know, is a typical Gemara passage where storage is not storage, right? Like they figured out a way to really break down all different types of storage, and is it, you know, a food item that you know the measurement, don't know the measurement for? Um, it may seem like nitpicky in a certain way, because I guess you could sort of say, like, well, why not just check it? Like, what's the big deal? But I think it also is telling us something about, like, how different food items are actually used or measured out, at least. Right, exactly. I find that I that's exactly what I find interesting. Or the possibility that something might run out at the meal, and then the thought that there's no possibility that that other kind of food would run out at the meal. You're never going to run out of a large fish, only a small fish. Right. And yeah, it just it was it's a there's something very human about that, you know, this whole passage, like, in other words, it's really understanding how people eat, how households with servants run, like the whole thing about it. But again, it has that sort of nitpicky piece that I think is also sometimes what makes learning Gemara challenging, you know, where they're like, you're really going to go through every single type of storehouse, like a storehouse is a storehouse, either say you check them or say you don't check them. Right, except for that the oil one, you really don't need to check. And also one other point here is, you know, in my house, we basically go into the kitchen, you know, and, and I know there are homes that are obviously larger than mine. I live in an apartment in Jerusalem. But even so, so even if you have a second freezer or you have a pantry, so those are the places that you're storing the food. You don't have separate storages for your salt and for your fish and for your oil and for your, meaning this is, you know, of mansion proportions, it sounds like. And I find that also a little bit surprising. I, I totally hear that. Um, I'm going to move down to something that's on Amud Bet, um, which I just thought was an interesting concept. The, the Gemara here is talking about um, you know, whole discussion about checking cracks and holes and that there's some type of sakana in doing that, right? There's some type of gene danger. Um, and one of the dangers that it says it is, right? My sakana inama sakana uh, fasim. 
um, that, you know, there's maybe a danger of sorcery. Um, and that the idea is that the non-Jew who you share this wall with, right, where there's a crack in the wall, not so much that they will cast, you know, a spell on the Jew, but more that they might suspect the Jew of doing some type of witchcraft or, you know, something like that. And then the Gemara makes a very interesting observation, right? This idea that you could, we're not going to check the cracks in or the holes in the wall because of this Sakana. But Amar Rabbi Eliezer, uh, so they said, yeah, but didn't Rabbi Elazar make the statement that somebody who's like a, you know, shaliach mitzvah or somebody who's on their way to do a mitzvah, right? Um, they don't get harmed. Like nothing bad will happen to you if you're on your way to do a mitzvah. Now, we all know that what I love about the statement is, I think this is one of those sort of simplistic statements of faith we all want to believe is actually true, right? That if you were going on your way to do a mitzvah, nothing should actually happen to you. Unfortunately, I think all of us have observed enough things in life, right? That that's not necessarily always true. The Gemara that goes on and then says, Right? So the Gemara basically says, wait, they want to say, you know, because in other words, the, the machlokas here is, well, how can Rabbi Lazar say that you, you know, you can't get harmed, but yet we know, I think the Gemara is basically saying, but we do know that people sometimes get harmed. So, and also then why would they make this comment about the Sakana, right? That should have just been the answer. You, you should actually have to check those holes. There's no worry about Sakana. So the Gemara says, right, that in a place where danger is common, it's different. In other words, you cannot rely on the fact that nothing will happen to you, right? If there's a risk, I think that sort of something could happen to you. Um, and so the proof that they bring for this is in Shmuel Al of Perak uh, Tetzai and Pasuk Bet, chapter 16, verse 2, um, which is where Hashem basically commands Shmuel uh, to anoint David as the king instead of Shaul, right? And that could have been very dangerous to, Shmu, to, to Shmuel Hanavi, right? Because Shaul is really the king still. So Shmuel basically says, and this is the pasuk that he quote, right? He says, how can I go? Because Shaul's going to hear and kill me, right? And then God, Hashem basically says, take in your hands a calf, right? And the rest of the pasuk basically says, you know, and say that you really were coming to give a sacrifice uh, to Hashem. So in other words, that even though Hashem tells Shmuel to go ahead and do this, right? He still sort of needed to create a cover story uh, in order to go bad. And he was going to say that he was going to bring that he was going to bring this, uh, this Korban. Um, so, you know, so on the one hand, I think the Gemara wants to believe that this statement is true. But on the other hand, it sort of understands that that's not actually how the world really works. And that, you know, you sort of can't go through life saying like, well, you know, I didn't do anything or, you know, I don't have to worry about protecting my own safety, right? Because like bad things are going to happen and a person is obligated uh, to sort of protect themselves. So I just thought it was interesting how it's sort of like they share this statement. It is a common statement of Rabbi Elazar, but at the same time, they want to prove like, no, but commonplace danger is commonplace danger. And that you have to use your common sense, when you're exposed or at risk of being exposed. Right. To and so danger. I, so I would encourage everybody go look up this chapter 
in Shmuel Aleph, right? Because basically what Hashem basically tells him to do is, is he takes this, you know, he takes this calf, right? He's going to say that he has this Mizbeach, right? And then he does this whole thing where he goes to Yishai's house, David's father, right? And he says to him, and, you, and he's supposed to invite him to this, you know, to this feast, and then he'll sort of know what he does. So in other words, I think it's like he sort of creates a reason to have to go there or sort of a ruse. So it's not just like he's going in order to, um, in order to annoy, anoint him. And so then the Gemara goes on, Bal mine me rav, right? So they, they, they had a, a question about this from Rav. Right. So there were some kid, you know, some students in the school of Rav who lived in the fields. That's what a baga was, meaning they lived not in the city. So obviously it was not so safe, let's say, to travel. So the question is, what was the halacha if they wanted to come early, right before morning? And also, you know, and in the evening after dark to the school, right? Should they be concerned that maybe travel was not so safe, right? Amar luhu nitua live al sabarai nizil my amar luhu lo yadana. So first he says, what? Let them come and it will be on me and my neck, right? Like in other words, I'll be responsible if something happens to them. I'm responsible for their safety because I'm telling them to come and learn Torah with me, right? And then they said to him, right? you know, what about going back home? Like going to be with you, we understand that, right? That's like going to learn Torah, to, to be with your, your Rebbe, right? But what about when they go home? Like they've done the mitzvah already. And so he actually answers them. He says, Lo yadana. he actually says, I don't know. He's not actually sure about that, which I think is interesting because I think it shows like Rub does, you know, it, it gives him pause, you know, gives him pause a little bit. So then the Gemara goes on to say, right? So then the Gemara quotes Rabbi Elazar again, and now it sort of refines it and says, no, this shliach mitzvah thing applies when you're going to do the mitzvah and even when you're coming back. And then the Gemara basically wants to say, okay, well, who is this actually like who sort of had this broader version of Rabbi Elazar? And then they decide it's Isi ben Yehuda which is interesting to me. It's not like a very well-known Tana, which I thought, I don't know, to me was sort of interesting. And the, then the Gemara goes on and wants to explain, you know, delves a little bit more into some of the details. Like, why do you need, what's the proof for it that on the way back, it's okay. And if you proved on the way back, why do you need to even say on the way there? And they have a whole discussion about this. So I'm always taken by when we have these types of passages, you know, did the authors of the Gemara really believe it? I mean, because I think the story of Rev shows he like sort of believes it, but he also recognized that there was risk in it, right? Like he's basically saying they should travel to learn with me, but it's on my neck. Like if something happens, I was responsible because I told them. And on the way back, he's like, nah, I'm not so sure. Lo yadana. I'm not actually sure. But yet at the same time, I think the Gemara wants to actually believe that this principle is actually true in the world. I think we all want to believe that it's actually true in the world. I mean, this is why we give shliach mitzvah money, even just for traveling, right? It's the idea that, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of things that we do to present ourselves as on this good path of being a shaliach for something that's a mitzvah, right? I feel like this is, I don't want to say it's superstition, right? It's, it's a, putting one's faith in Hashem. And the fact that the world might not work as smoothly as we want it to does not mean that we shouldn't have that, you know, 
put in our effort to make sure that we've done all we can to get it to get it. To yeah, I like way. that formulation, right? That it's but I think at the same time, the Gemara recognizes like if there's danger, there's danger, right? And you should account for that and you should plan for that. Um, I want to move on to something else here. So one of the examples that they talk about with this idea of, you know, shliach mitzvah coming and going is being Ola Larego, right? That you have to get to Yerushalayim, but then you also have to come back from Yerushalayim. Um, and then the Gemara mentioned something here, which I was so taken by because we had such a bizarre Gemara about it in Brachot. Um, and it says as follows, I'm a Rav Adin bar, bar Rav Ada. I'm a Rav Yitzchak. So Rav Adin says the name of Rav Ada, who says the name of Rav Yitzchak. Why don't we have these fruits of Ginosar in Yerushalayim? So again, because when you were Olalarega, when you went up uh, for the three holidays, for, you know, uh, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, obviously you were going to Yerushalayim. And I remembered, I was like, oh, we learned about these Peirot um, uh, Ginosar. And I remember that we learned this in Brachot, and this was, it was a very bizarre Gemara, right? It was on Daf uh, Mem Dalit on 44. Um, and it was talking about, it's the Gemara's in the middle of a discussion there. Now, don't worry. I just remember that it was in Brachot. I had to actually look up the Daf and remember where it was. Um, but it was talking about cases where uh, if bread is the primary thing that you're eating or you're using the bread more, you know, for what's on it. Um, and so they were talking about, you know, that, uh, you know, foods like that, where like you're eating two foods together, what's the primary food? So they were talking about this Peyrotsky Nosar, which apparently were very, very sweet. And you often would eat it with salty food and you would eat bread along with that salty food. And in that case, the bread was really considered to be secondary. And then the Gemara went on about like how amazing these fruits, these Peyrots of Ginosar were, right? And it talked about the Rabbi Abach who ate them until his skin was so slippery that a fly would slip from his forehead. And Rav Ami, Rav Asi ate it till their f- hair fell out. And Rabbi Shimon ben Lucky ate it until he became confused. And Rabbi Yochanan would tell, uh, would tell uh, the house of the Nasi, right, what happened. And Rabbi Huda Nasi would send people over to basically take him out of his house because Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, this is Reish Lakish, Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, we'll, we'll talk about them at some point, who's always Rabbi Yochanan's bar palukta, um, that, you know, he would try to get him out of the house from eating this. So there was something very sort of intoxicating or special about this fruit. And therefore, what the Gemara is asking here is, is why wouldn't these special fruits not grow in Yerushalayim? If Yerushalayim is such a special city, it should have these fruits. And so therefore, what do they answer? Because why? Because they didn't want it to be, I think this is such an interesting answer, that when people were Ola Larego, when they would go up to Yerushalayim for the Chagim, right, that they would basically say, you know why I really went up? I went up because it was worth it to go up just so I could have these Peirot Ginosar, right? And therefore then the going up was not really Lishma. They really weren't doing it Lishem Mitzvah. They went to do it so they could get this amazing fruit. Um, I just thought this was such an interesting passage. I'll let you read the second half of it because it, it goes on with another example here, Anne, as well. Yeah, here's it's it's kind of a reprise, but a little bit different also. What is the reason that the hot springs of Tiberia are not in Yerushalayim? And of course, my first comment, even before I read the next line, is 
because they're in Tavaria, meaning they're not located in Yerushalayim. Why aren't they in Yerushalayim? And the answer is comparable to your like, what you've just read. Were we we were only really going up to Yerushalayim to to immerse or to use the hot springs rather than to go to Yerushalayim for the sake of going to Yerushalayim. The idea that Yerushalayim is supposed to be sanctified and sufficient on its own. So that people would then be not that they would not have their aliyah regel being lishma in the same uh, in the for the sake of the mitzvah of aliyah regel. And so, on the one hand, I find this to be very interesting. On the other hand, I feel like I don't know people. People have all kinds of ulterior motives, even when they're doing the main thing that's also really important. So it's an interesting. It's on the one hand, it's an interesting discussion in its own right. I also found the parallels here, like the Perokino Sar versus Chamei Tveria, are not exactly the same kind of thing, right? Chamei Tveria is basically asking a question: of Why did God create the earth? To be in this way that the Chamei Taveria are not located in Yerushalayim and the Peru Ginosar, I don't know, could they not grow except for in Ginosar? Could they not be, could we not cultivate them in Jerusalem? In which case the answer is, well, no, you maybe you could, but don't go do it, which is a different kind of statement than the Chamei right. Taveria. Well, just one side note about the Peru Ginosar, and anybody can look this up. Um, you know, they primarily grew in the, in the north, and Ginosar may actually be a derivative of the word gal- Galil. So they, they grew in that part of the country. I mean, I think what's interesting here is, you know, obviously Yerushalayim is meant to be sort of like the most special city. And so some of what the Gemara is trying to tease out here, what distinguishes Yerushalayim? And it's obviously not distinguished by its food. It's not distinguished by something that I guess is comforting or, not, you know, the, the hot springs, like something that's actually nice about the city. Recreational right, activities. Like, you know, and I guess what it's trying to say in the end is like, you're supposed to be Ola Lobrego because like that's just where you were supposed to be Ola Lobrego. Not because Yerushalayim in itself had something beneficial to give you when you went there. And I think there's, I don't know, for me personally, I mean, and you have the zuchut to live in Yerushalayim. I hope I will one day soon, God willing. I mean, I've always been so charmed by the city. I think it's amazing. Um, but it's interesting that almost in the way the Gemara wants to play up, but there's nothing really special about it. <laughs> or it's special in its own right for being itself and that the any nor what do you call it basically the normal attractions of anywhere else don't have to be in Yerushalayim to make Yerushalayim Yerushalayim I, I wonder if that you know I wonder to what extent that's true I think that the fact that Yerushalayim is beautiful and also certainly nowadays there's a certain I don't mean nowadays coronavirus I mean nowadays in our era um, there's a certain amount of catering to the tourist who comes to see the beautiful city of Jerusalem, I would I would expect that that happened back then too, right? In the Ole Regal times, people knew the people, the the Olim were coming. And I'm sure that they, you know, we know about this, that they, they set up hotels type of thing, you know, for people to stay, lodgings, whatever. I'm sure that they went all out. Now, the difference is you're not going to Yerushalayim to have the all-out treatment you're going because you're going to Yerushalayim and once you're there it's nicer if you're treated better so that's also maybe still part of being special about well, Yerushalayim I, well um, I just I want just to say want, one thing I'm yes, gonna sorry. I want to say this like you know make a note of this Gemara because I think it's actually an important Gemara to learn because I think often we learn the Gemara is about how beautiful Yerushalayim was and it was you know all those things but I think this also it says something mm-hmm. beautiful about it like you're there to do a mitzvah lishma 
And I think that's its distinguishing uh, characteristic and actually very beautiful. I think you're right. Um, I want to come back. The Gemara here, just at the very end of this bit, takes us back to the storage cases that I mentioned at the beginning, because that's you know really what the Duff is talking about, or largely what the Duff is talking about. And it goes on to speak more about where do you have to check. But in, at the end of the day, or rather here towards the end of the Duff, the Gemara says, you don't really have to check all those places. The bottom line is that all those different storage places, the whole point is that you don't have to check there unless there's a risk that you actually brought chametz into the place, which is why we have this distinction of might you have gotten up in the middle of the meal and schlepped some chametz along with you as you went to check. But the the bottom line, the real underlying principle then is that as, as long as you can assume that you would never have brought chametz there, you don't have to go and check there for and and these storage places do not require searching so and then the Gemara goes on to this very long complicated geometry basically of what happens when you have rows of I guess of bottles right of of um not pictures what's the right word yeah, pictures, right? The, the idea that you have all of this storage of bottles of wine or of oil or of anything, and the idea that you, even if you have to check, you might only really have to check the most external row where you might have actually, you know, taken something from there and therefore dropped a crumb. But if you have, you know, I don't know, however many rows of things going back, you don't have to go to the very back. You don't have to take your storehouse apart and, and recheck for it. So I just wanted to mention that because, you know, we had left the Gemara, the Gemara leaves the Gemara early on the daf to say, you need to check in all these places because of maybe you went there during your meal. And the end of the Gemara says like, no, but come on, you don't really, you know, again, unless you really knew that you did. And all of these, the, you know, the, we're going to see as the Gemara goes on that there are other mitigating circumstances that will determine whether or not you need to check. Yeah, I, you know, the whole thing with checking, I mean, what's interesting is the next stop is actually going to get to a, a new Mishnah. Um, but this whole process of like, bidikat chameids all the way to beer chameids, again, I'm just so taken by, none of this is actually written in the Torah and how the rabbis come to all the halakot around it. That's our daft discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Tell us what you think about doing Batika and your special relationship with Yerushalayim on our Talking, Tal- Talking Talmud Facebook page. Until tomorrow, go and learn. 